This morning, I'm going to ask you to turn in your Bible uh, to Luke 23. We're continuing to look at the death of Jesus Christ. So Luke uh, 23 will begin with verse 44 this morning. The crucifixion was a gruesome and it was a humiliating way to die. It was meant to punish the offender and to instill fear in those that watched that they might not offend Rome. Jesus had been falsely accused and is now being executed by Roman soldiers. It was evil. But at the same time, it was part of God's sovereign plan to save His people from their sin. This morning, as we look at the crucifixion, I want us to notice three miracles that occurred as Jesus died. There was the darkness, the torn curtain, and finally the centurion's profession. Each miracle leads to the next, and together they're actually a summary of God's good news for us. So look with me at Luke 23, verse 44 and following. It was now about the sixth hour, and there was darkness over the land until the ninth hour, while the sun's light failed. And the curtain of the temple was torn in two. Then Jesus, calling out with a loud voice, said, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And having said this, he breathed his last. Now when the centurion saw what had taken place, he praised God, saying, certainly this man was innocent. And all the crowds that had assembled for the spectacle when they saw what had taken place returned home beating their breasts. And all his acquaintances and the women who had followed him from Galilee stood at a distance watching these things. Now there was a man named Joseph from the Jewish town of Arimathea. He was a member of the council a good and righteous man who had not consented to their decision or their actions. And he was looking for the kingdom of God. This man went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. Then he took it down and wrapped it in linen, a shroud, and laid him in a tomb cut in stone where no one had ever yet been laid. It was the day of preparation. And the Sabbath was beginning. The women who had come with Jesus from Galilee followed and saw the tomb and how his body was laid. Then they returned and prepared spices and ointments. And on the Sabbath day they rested according to the commandment. 
It was March 1986. I was a sophomore at Geneva College, and Jonathan Woodson, a, a guy that lived on my floor, was killed in a bicycle automobile accident. We had a, a memorial service on campus, and I distinctly remembering leaving the building after that service, and I saw a number of students walking around on campus, and I felt angry. Not so much at those students, but at a world that continued as though nothing tragic had ever happened. Over the years, I've had a, a similar experience as, as I've uh, conducted funerals. As I stand at the hearse and the casket is rolled in, you can see the traffic going by. People walking around, some even laughing. It's just another day to them, and it doesn't seem right. In those moments when someone you love dies, a mother, a father, a spouse, a friend, a child, doesn't it feel like the whole world should stop? Bow its head in silence in a, in a moment of shared pain and acknowledge that things will never be the same again. Jesus is God in flesh, the creator of heaven and earth, and Jesus in his flesh is dying on a cross. And most of the world at this time doesn't know, and they don't care. Sure, the women from Galilee, they're mourning from a distance, Joseph of Arimathea, he wants to honor Jesus by giving him a, a proper burial. And I'm sure that Jesus' disciples were in pain and confused, even though only John was brave enough to come out. For the Roman soldiers, this was just another day on the job. They've executed criminals before. The religious leaders, uh, it doesn't tell us how they responded, but I would think they were a little smug. They had finally defeated this instigator, and now things can get back to peace. The rest of Jerusalem was filled with people. It was Passover week. Jews from all over the world were there. Most of them were likely catching up with friends and family that they hadn't seen since the last time they had been in the city. Humanity 
should have mourned this cosmic injustice. But most of them didn't even acknowledge it. But the creation did. Verse 44. It was now about the sixth hour, meaning it was 12 noon, the brightest time of the day. And there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour, while the sun's light failed. How does the sun's light fail? It can be dimmed, it can be covered, but that's not what he says. It failed. We don't know exactly how God accomplished this, what happened, but it, it doesn't seem to be a, a natural phenomena. A lunar eclipse, which many unbelievers would say it was, only lasts a few minutes. This lasted for three hours. And it was utter darkness. Creation was acknowledging what the vast bulk of humanity did not, that the God incarnate was dying on a cross. But of course the creation would respond. The heavens declare what? The glory of the Lord. Just a couple of chapters earlier, the, the, the Pharisees want Jesus to rebuke his disciples for honoring him as their Messiah King. But Jesus said, if these individuals were silent, even the stones would cry out. Why darkness? What does it mean? In the Old Testament, darkness can be identified as a, sun, a sign of creational mourning. Think of a passage like Amos 8, verses 9 and 10. It says, On that day, declares the Lord, I will make the sun go down at noon and darken the earth in broad daylight. I will turn your feasts into mourning and your songs into lamentation. And so in this moment, it's as if creation bows its head in sadness as it looks as though evil is winning. Jesus himself said when he was arrested in Gethsemane, the power of darkness, the power of evil has come. But more than sadness, I think the darkness represents the wrath of God that's being poured out for the sins of humanity. Zephaniah 1, the great day of the Lord is near. Near and hastening fast. The sound of the day of the Lord is bitter. The mighty man cries out. A day of wrath is that day. A day of distress 
and anguish, a day of ruin and devastation, a day of darkness and gloom, a day of clouds and thick darkness. Jesus is dying for the evil of men's hearts. He is dying for sins. Not not His own sins, but for those who would believe in Him. Your sins. My sins. It It was a sad day. It was an evil day. But for us who believe, it was a day of mercy and grace as well, wasn't it? As the wrath of God, the fearful wrath of God, falls on Jesus instead of us. Jesus was crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. That tells us in Acts 2. But delivered up according to the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God. In this tragic, sad, and evil day, our good God is fulfilling His promises that go back to Eden. As He declared judgment on them, He promised that He would redeem humanity. That one day, the serpent would strike the heel of the seed of the woman. But in the process, the seed of the woman would crush the head of the serpent. Jesus faces the mighty wrath of God in order to destroy sin and Satan. He faces the darkness of God's wrath so you and I don't have to. It was far worse than we can even imagine. Hell is far greater and more horrid than we can even comprehend. And in the darkness, Jesus experienced the eternity of hell for millions. As He who knew no sin, became sin for us that we might become the righteousness of God. Three hours of supernatural darkness and as Jesus breathes His last, we see the second miracle, verse 45, and the curtain of the temple was torn in two. From the Garden of Eden to the promised land to the promised new heaven and new earth, God's purpose has always been the same. 
God's people living in a garden paradise under the rule of God. God's promise throughout the Bible from Genesis to Revelation is they will be My people and I will be their God. In the Old Testament, the temple was God's presence among His people. It was the place that God had chosen for His people to worship Him. But because of sin... God's presence was mediated through temple worship and sacrifices. Humanity couldn't draw near into the very presence of God. For how can a holy God allow sin before Him? We need help. We needed mercy. We needed the Gospel. God's promise of a snake crusher was the beginning of the covenant of grace that God would destroy evil and redeem His people. The Old Testament worship and sacrifices were a manifestation of that covenant of grace in what's called shadows, types, and promises. The worship and the sacrifices were provisional in that they looked forward to something beyond themselves, to something greater. They looked forward to the ultimate fulfillment of the covenant of grace in Jesus' life, death, and resurrection. He is the final Passover offering. The temple was God's presence among His people. But his full presence was shielded from the people as God's was in the Holy of Holies. If you remember, uh, the temple had three parts. The outer court was where the people could come. The, the holy place was where the priests entered as they performed the daily worship before God. And then... A large veil separated the holy place from the holy of holies, which represented the throne room of God. There was his throne, the mercy seat, and the Ark of the Covenant. Only the high priest could enter the holy of holies. And he could only do it one time a year. And he dare not come without the blood. On the Day of Atonement, the high priest would make a sacrifice for himself. And then he would make a sacrifice for the people. And he would enter the Holy of Holies. And he would sprinkle the blood on the mercy seat to atone for the people's sin. there was great rejoicing. But it had to be done year after year. Again and again and again because of the greatness of man's sin. Hebrews 3, 
or Hebrews 10, 3 to 4 tells us, in, the, in these sacrifices, these, uh, past, or these day of atonement sacrifices, there is a reminder of sin every year. For it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sin. That doesn't mean the sacrifices didn't have their effect. But the efficacy of the sacrifices was not in the sacrifice itself, but in Christ to whom they pointed. As an Israelite embraced a sacrifice in faith, they were embracing Christ himself and his blood as the reality of that sacrifice. Now, they didn't know the name of Jesus, and they didn't necessarily understand all that he would be and do, but their faith was in the God who saves, who promised a messianic king who would destroy sin and redeem the people. Jesus' death is the fulfillment of all the sacrifices and promises of God that came before it. Again, Hebrews 10.14, For by a, a single offering, Jesus has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. There is no need for any other sacrifice. Jesus accomplished it all when he cried out, it is finished. The wrath of God poured out on Christ satisfied God's righteous requirement and the curtain of the temple that separated the holy place from the holy of holies was torn in two signifying anything that separated God's people from God's very presence was eliminated. We now have full and complete access to the Father in union with our Savior, Jesus Christ. Jesus has earned the right to enter God's throne room through His obedience, His perfect life, and atoning death. In his humanity, he fulfilled all righteousness for us. And he now shares what he merited with us who are united to him by faith, cleansed by his blood. And so Hebrews 10 again says in verses 19 to 22, since we have confidence to enter the holy places, by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way that He opened for us through the curtain, that is, through His flesh. And since we have a great high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Our sin is gone. There is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And so we don't have to be afraid. 
You ever feel as though God's just stuck with you? He didn't know what he was getting into when he saved you? As though he regrets it now? Your sin doesn't surprise him. He already paid for it. He knows you better than you know yourself. And he knows in yourself you're far worse than you even think. Yet he put his love on you. He chose you. Not because of anything good in you. Because he is good. He set his love. And he saved you. He redeemed you. You are washed and you are clean. And now he invites you, he calls you, he actually commands you to live the life that he has given you in purity and obedience to him. The darkness of judgment fell on Christ. The curtain is torn, giving us full access to God. But the torn curtain represents something else as well. It's not just our access to God. But it's where the, the Spirit comes to save God's people. As the curtain is torn, the Spirit proceeds from the Holy of Holies to open eyes and give faith to believe the gospel. How do we know that? Immediately following the evidence is the Roman centurion's profession of faith. Now when the centurion saw what had taken place, he praised God, saying, certainly this man was innocent. The Gospel of Mark gives an even clearer indication of his faith. In Mark 15, it says, And the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. And when the centurion who stood facing him saw that in this way he breathed his last, he said, Truly, this man was the Son of God. He was who he said he was. It's interesting, in, in, in Mark's account, in the Gospel of Mark, that's the first time any person calls Jesus the Son of God. God declared Jesus the Son of God at his baptism. The demons recognized Jesus as the Son of God. But in Mark's Gospel, no one else calls Jesus the Son of God until the, the curtain is torn and the centurion believes. And his profession of faith, this man is the Son of God. The, the curtain is torn, giving us full access to God. And as the Spirit goes out, it regenerates God's elect. The, the curtain is torn, the Spirit goes to give Spirit-born faith. 
this profession of faith, this praise of God, didn't come from that Roman centurion in himself. It's a fruit of the Spirit's work within him. The religious leaders, the, the scribes and the Pharisees watched Jesus die, and they didn't seem to have any faith. They didn't see Jesus' death with the eyes of faith like the centurion saw it. Why? Because the Spirit didn't come upon them to give them faith. All who believe do so because the Holy Spirit breathes life into them first. We're born again so that we will believe the gospel. Prior to the Spirit's regenerating work, we are at enmity with God. We will not humble ourselves and we will not bow to God. We will not come to Him. That's what Romans 3 tells us. None is righteous, no one. No one understands, no one seeks God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, no, not one. If we're going to have access to God, then the Spirit must be first sent from God to have access to us. Jesus dies. The the curtain is torn, pouring out the Holy Spirit, evidenced immediately by the miracle of the centurions professing that Christ is the Son of God. Now, that's not the same pouring out of the Spirit that happens at Pentecost. That that affected a a huge mass, and, and and the ripples continue. But it is a foretaste. It is a sign and a promise of what God would do because of the finished work of Christ. Jesus the second person of the triune God takes on flesh and in his flesh faces the dark silence of God's wrath for sin. In that moment, he says, Why? Why have you forsaken me? Now Jesus knew. He knew why he had come. He knew why he was on the cross. But the pain and the loneliness was so immense that his heart just cried out in desperation. And heaven was silent. Jesus took it all. All of the holy justice of God. And because He took it, the curtain is torn. The wall of separation between us and God is removed and the Holy Spirit is sent out so we can believe. The crucifixion of Christ is the heart of the gospel. 
But in, in Luke's account, it's also a proclamation of the gospel. Wrath leads to redemption, leads to salvation. The darkness comes, the curtain is torn, and the profession of faith follows. Each miracle redemptively leading to the next, and together summarize God's good news for us. Because Christ faced the darkness, we are now children of the light. And that changes everything. It may not change our situation. This life is still hard. But it changes our perspective. Paul says this in Ephesians 5, For at one time you were in darkness, but now you are in the light of the Lord. Walk as children of light. For the fruit of light is found in all that is good and right and true. And try to discern what is pleasing to the Lord. When the Spirit came, He gave us a new life. He gave us a new nature. It's a nature that loves God and wants to obey God. And so that should change how we live day to day. It changes how we interpret the things that happen to us. And sitting here together, we can all say amen in our heart. But it's a lot harder to live that out, isn't it? Because life in this fallen world is hard. There are some here today who are facing job loss. And your heart is gripped with fear for the economic struggle that's about to begin. Others have Broken relationships, parents, children. You were hoping this Thanksgiving would be a little different. But it didn't take long for the arguments to start. And that's assuming they showed up at all. And you don't see how they can ever be fixed. There are some who are part of our family here at Green Tree who this morning are walking through the valley of the shadow of death. Someone they love has died. And their life will not be the same. Some are watching their loved one die this morning. And they feel helpless. And they feel alone. 
but the gospel changes everything. You are not alone. We have each other. In the local church, we have committed to one another. What? To do life together. To walk with each other through the good and the bad times. To support one another. Now the danger is, sometimes when people are hurting, they pull away from other people. They don't want to cry. They don't want to seem weak. If that's you, let me encourage you, it is far better to actually embrace those around you. To share your heart and ask for help. I'm not saying we're going to do it well or perfectly, because we fail. But there's something about presence, just being with people that helps, isn't there? I remember first time I dealt with a family who lost a child. Uh, the, the, the baby was 10 days old. And I spent the night in the hospital with the family. And the next day, uh, I was talking to my oldest brother, Warren, and I said, I felt so useless. He said, you were there. There are no, there's no, there, in those moments when people are struggling, you don't have to have answers for them. You just have to love them and be willing to be used by God to be a presence. Because in that moment, you represent Christ to them. There may be times that they feel as though God has abandoned them, but you are his ambassador. And he sent you to represent him in their life. Not only do we have one another, we have the Spirit. The, the curtain is torn, the Spirit's come. And it's the Spirit of Christ who dwells in us. And He understands our suffering. We were just reading how He experienced it Himself. He's been touched by everything. You, just think of the last 24 hours of His life. Lied about, betrayed, denied, abandoned, and killed. He understands what you are experiencing. He understands all of our pain. Turn to Him in your time of need. Cry out to Him in your sorrow and in your confusion, and you will find peace for your soul. It may not come immediately, and it may fade at times, but where else are you going to go for hope and comfort? Nothing else can satisfy because nothing else is ultimate. And as you look upon Him, recognize that actually through the suffering, 
you are being conformed into His image. As you come into the light and you behold His glory, His glory will change you because as you see Him, you become like Him. And in this present world of pain and suffering and chaos, what we need is more of Him. To see and experience His glory. Will you pray with me? Our Father, we know that Your Word is true. We know that we need it. Uh, but it's so hard in this life to to believe, uh, to trust you fully. And so this morning I ask that as we consider your death on the cross and all that took place, that you would strengthen our faith, that you would renew it, that we would have our hearts lifted up to see you more clearly, and that you would change us. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.